Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The first reading can be found on page 701. Isaiah chapter 17, beginning to read at verse 1. An oracle concerning Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aroa will be deserted and left to flocks which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade the fat of his body will waste away. It will be as when a reaper gathers the standing corn and harvests the corn with his arm, as when a man gleams ears of corn in the valley of Rephraim. Yet some gleanings will remain, as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. In that day, Men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look at the altars, the work of their hands, and they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. In that day, their strong cities, which they left because of the Israelites, will be like places abandoned to the thickets and undergrowth, and all will be desolation. You have forgotten God, your Saviour, You have not remembered the rock, your fortress. Therefore, you set out the finest plants and plant imported vines. Though on that day you set them out, you make them grow. And on the morning when you plant them, you bring them to bud. Yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and incurable pain. Oh, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of peoples. They roar like the roaring of great waters. Although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee far away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like tumbleweed before a gale. In the evening, sudden terror. Before the morning, they are gone. This is the portion of those who loot us, the lot of those who plunder us. The second reading can be found on page 1234. Revelation, chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lamps' hands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you 
and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. We do indeed ask, Lord and God, that we've, as we've been uh, singing, our prayer is that through the preaching of your word now, uh, we, all of us here, would want to confess Christ as Lord, uh, the Lord above all things, the Lord whom we trust and obey in everything. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, a a very warm welcome to you. It's great to have you here. Again, uh, as uh, Peter said, if you're here for the first time, you're very especially uh, welcome. Uh, There's two things that you might like to do. One would be to uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 17. We're looking through chapters 13 to 27 uh, on these Sunday mornings leading up to the summer break. And uh, page 701 is the page number. Uh, We'll come to that in just a moment. It will take us a little while to get there uh, with a bit of an introduction, uh, but I think it will be useful having that open. The other thing that you might find useful will be to dig out this uh, handout uh, that uh, has been tucked inside your bundle. Uh, It's on a buff colour. And um, uh, whether you like these things or not, you might particularly find it helpful to have this one in front of you because um, you'll see I've got some terms and conditions that I'm going to come to. There's various names and phrases that might not be familiar to us. And uh, as we see them in the Bible, uh, there you'll be able to glance down at the terms and conditions and uh, see where we're going and what these things mean. Well, let me ask you if you can imagine England without any churches. I don't mean by that this green and pleasant land without church spires punctuating the landscape. I, I mean, can you imagine England without any or maybe just a handful of gatherings of real Christian worshipping communities? Can you believe that there could be a time when a whole generation would grow up in this nation without having any or much access to the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? A time when you'd have to travel miles to find a real Bible-believing church to go to. Can you imagine the church in, in, in England largely being removed from this land by God? I was uh, talking to someone this week who's going uh, to Turkey next week for a holiday. Uh, once she told me that the Foreign Office reckon it's safe for her to travel to her destination, she told me that she's uh, planning a day trip to Ephesus to see the ruins of that great biblical city. What a thought to uh, walk where the Apostle Paul walked. But equally what a desperate sight it will be too. Ephesus and indeed the whole area of Asia Minor where churches were planted in the first century. And now there are none. Just as Jesus warned in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation, our second reading just now. And we heard Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. See, if churches don't remain faithful to Jesus, then they will be removed by Jesus himself. It happened in Ephesus, so let me ask you again, can you imagine it happening here in England? Indeed, has it not already begun to happen Oh, in almost every city and town and village in this land, there are church buildings and people who meet in them. 
But in many parts of the country, people have to travel miles to find a real faithful Bible-believing church meeting. And there are many church congregations that are just fizzling out completely. Let me take you on a quick trip around Sheffield to demonstrate what I'm talking about. Drive down the Crooksmoor Road with me and you'll see a church building that is now a second-hand furniture store. Uh, Come down to the Hallamshire Hospital. Next to the Hallamshire Hospital is a church building that is now a drama studio. And then uh, think of that rather imposing building that used to be St George's Church, now a lecture theatre. And on the corner of Carver Street and West Street, what was a church is now a bar called Walkabout. And if that isn't bad enough, it's an Australian bar. Well, we can laugh. It's not something to be laughed about, really, though, is it? And my guess is, even as I take you on that rather depressing tour, I imagine we find it hard to believe that this land, with its rich Christian heritage, could end up a spiritually barren landscape. And that is why Isaiah chapter 17 is such an important chapter for us. In this whole section, uh, some of you will know that, you've been here over these last uh, uh, couple of weeks, but if you haven't, in this whole section from chapters 13 to 27, The Lord speaks to his people, Judah, and proclaims a series of oracles to them about the nations that are around them. As we've been seeing in these last weeks, each oracle has largely the same message. It says to God's people, Judah, don't make an alliance with the nations that are around you because they have no future. Judgment is coming upon them. And the Lord needed to say it to Judah again and again because back then, God's people were very tempted to make an alliance with the world around them. Remember, Judah was under great threat from the world, the threat of being overrun by one of the nations that was around them. So to them, it seemed politically expedient to make an alliance with one or more of the nations around them so that they'd not be overcome by one of the other nations around them. And the church faces exactly the same temptation today. The church in this land is under attack, as it will always be in every land, actually. Uh, But in this land, whether it be from the new atheists with their aggressive campaign to undermine Christian truth, or from the government putting pressure on the church to change its views on sexuality and gender distinctives, or, or in an increasingly secular society that we are, the church is always going to feel the pressure, the pressure to conform to the world in order to be acceptable to the world. Let's become like the world so the world come to us. That's what we think. It's bonkers. Become like the world, the world won't bother coming to us, don't need to, we're just like them. And so just as Judah was tempted to make an alliance with the world to survive, so are we. But if we get into bed with the world, the Lord Jesus himself may well come and remove our lampstand. That is the big warning running right through this section of Isaiah. But even with such a stark warning, Judah, like us, would have thought, surely not. We're the people of God. Surely we'd never come under that kind of judgment. And that's why this next oracle is so important to us. Chapter 17 is, as you can see from verse 1, an oracle concerning Damascus. But as we read on, we begin to realise it's not only about Damascus. Damascus was, uh, still is, of course, the capital of Syria. And just as it is much in the news today, it would have been often featured on news bulletins in Judah in Isaiah's day. Because you remember, Syria was the nation that had made an alliance with Israel. Now let me just stop here for a moment, because uh, this language of Israel can be quite uh, uh, confusing. 
We've got to be very clear who Israel are, and here you might find it useful to have your terms and conditions hand out. By this point in Bible history, the 12 tribes of Israel have split into two nations. You can read how that happened in 1 Kings chapter 12. I've put that on the handout. In that chapter, we learn how the 10 northern tribes of Israel split from Judah and Benjamin in the south. And so at this point in history, in the book of Isaiah, and this is crucial for us to understand the book of Isaiah, by this point in history, there were two separate and distinct nations, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And it is Judah who are the people of God, the line from which the Messiah would come. It is Judah who dwells in the promised land, with Jerusalem being their, their, their capital city. The ten northern tribes, now called Israel, have become a separate nation, quite distinct from Judah. But of course we know they have history. They were once one nation together. While they're not friends any longer, in a way Israel are like a family to Judah. Estranged family, but family all the same. After Judah... Israel, the northern tribes, have the strongest possible claim to be God's people. And at this point in history and in the book of Isaiah, the Lord still has a place for Israel in in his plans of salvation. And so do you see why this is so important for Judah? As they look at the fate of Israel, that will be very instructive for them. And that's why this oracle concerning Damascus, Syria, is so important Because remember, we saw this back in chapters 7 to 12, Israel made an alliance with Syria. Israel teamed up with Syria for protection, protection from the mighty Assyrian Empire. Now this oracle tells us the outcome of that alliance between Syria and Israel is not a happy ending. So verse 1, Isaiah writes, See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The nation that Israel sided with has no future. Damascus, the capital city, will become a heap of ruins and destruction won't end there in the capital, verse 2. The cities of Aroa will be deserted and left to flocks which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. Uh, Now the cities of Aroa are on the southern border of Syria. So Damascus will become a heap of ruins and the cities of Aroa, verse 2, would be deserted. Syria will be so devastated that the major cities of the nation will be uninhabited. That's the point of verse 2. Animals will graze among the ruins without fear of being disturbed because there'd be no one to disturb them. These cities have become like ghost towns. In this oracle, the Lord makes it very clear that the future is very bleak for Syria. But as we read on, we soon realise that this oracle is not just about Syria, as I've already said. Verse 3. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim, the royal power from Damascus. Now, Ephraim is another word for Israel. And so here in verse 3, we discover that Israel will meet the same fate as Syria. Indeed, they're they're combined together in verse 3. Israel, just like Syria, will be on the wrong end of judgment. And I think here's the key point for us this morning. If I've lost you so far, come back at this point. Remember, Israel, the northern kingdom, allied itself with Syria. And so here we see that Israel is linked with Syria in judgment. Because Israel allied herself with the world, so she will be judged as the world is judged. And so Judah is being warned. 
If Israel can be judged, even Israel, those who were once part of you, Israel, the closest nation to you in their claim to be the people of God, if Israel is being judged because she made an alliance with the world, be sure that you too will be judged in the same way if you make an alliance with the world. The message, uh, this message was to Judah what the opening chapters of Revelation should be to us. It's a warning that churches will have their lampstands removed if we do not remain faithful to the Lord. If we turn to the world for protection, we will not survive. Well, in the verses that follow, we see what that meant for Ephraim, for Israel. Indeed, we see Israel suffering the same fate as Syria and indeed as Moab and Babylon in the previous chapters that we looked at in the last couple of weeks. Israel's grim end is painted graphically for us in verses four and five. Verse four, in that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. Jacob, there's another name for Israel. Jacob is pictured here as a, as a person fading away. It's the devastating image of Second World War prisoners in Belson, starving to death. People walking around like skeletons, just skin and bone. That's how this once rich and successful nation will look, barely alive. On that day, verse 5, it will be as when a reaper gathers the standing corn and harvests the corn with his arm, as when a man gleans ears of corn in the valley of Rephaim. The image is changed now. We're now given a farming metaphor. It's harvest time. One day day you drive past a field of corn, quite magnificent to look at, a beautiful acres of golden corn gently swaying in the breeze. Next day, you drive past and it's gone, all cut down by the combine harvester. That's what's coming to Israel. They'll be cut down. In an instant, there'll be a shadow of their former glory. And so the message to Judah is this. If that happened to Israel, it could happen to you. So don't go the way of Israel. Don't make an alliance with the world, for it will end in tears. It's a very clear warning. Oh, there is the the smallest message of hope here for Israel, uh, the smallest message of hope for Israel. As the Lord continues, verse six, yet. The harvest will come, verse five. Israel will be cut down, yet Some gleanings will remain as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful boughs. And we're given another harvesting image, this time with a little bit of hope. This time it's uh, harvesting an olive grove when olive trees would be beaten to make the crops drop, uh, the fruit drop. And when you beat the olive trees, there's always a few branches that are just too tall, especially if you're my height. And so a few olives would be left on the trees. The point is this, Israel won't be completely destroyed because in, the, in that nation, there, there has, the nation that has been so disobedient, still there's been a few, the remnant, who have remained faithful. And the Lord doesn't forget his faithful people. That's the message that we heard, again, studying chapters 7 to 12. Do you remember it back in October? Isaiah's eldest son was called Shia Jashub, meaning a remnant will return. And so, verse 7, in that day, men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. Yes, even in that time of great judgment, there will be some, but only a few olives on the topmost branches Still, there will be some who, verse 7, look to their maker, people who trust the Holy One of Israel. 
People have refused to follow the rest in making an alliance with the world. So no, it's not a picture of total destruction. But it is still not a picture you want to be in. In our thinking, it's some turning on grand designs and seeing church buildings once full of Christian people now being the subject of architectural innovation as they're transformed into innovative homes. English history, of course, is littered with stories of churches that were once packed to the rafters, packed to the rafters as uh, the Bible was faithfully taught and now barely inhabited on a Sunday or closed altogether because those churches no longer believe in the Bible. Someone told me this week of someone they know who's been looking for three years for a church in their area. Oh, there are church buildings in the area and there are people who meet in them on Sunday mornings, but they haven't found a gathering of Christian people full of vibrant life where the Bible is taught. Look, churches will not survive if they are not faithful to the Lord. And don't think it won't happen to us here. Churches don't have a right to be around forever. So all this begs the question, what brings about this judgment? Well, look with me at verse 8. Remember, remember the faithful remnant will not be judged. They're described in verse 7 as those who look to the maker, to the Holy One of Israel. And now in contrast to the rest of the nation, the faithful remnant of verse 7 will not, verse 8, look to the altars, the work of their hands, And they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. The Asherah poles were the symbol of Canaanite religion. So you see, there's the problem. Israel has become idolatrous, worshipping other gods, the gods of the nations around them. And then look on to verse 10, which spells it out in another way. Just over the page, verse 10. You have forgotten God your saviour. You've not remembered the rock, your fortress. They've forgotten God and and then the rest of verse 10 and 11 go on to describe the practices of a fertility cult. So they've forgotten God and they've turned to other gods. In short and borrowing an expression from the prophet Jeremiah, Israel have committed two sins. They've turned away from the only true God, forgetting him, verse 10, and they've turned to other gods, verse 8. And when God's people do that, they are no longer God's people and they come under God's judgment. And desperately, that is happening in churches throughout the land. At the Worlow Grange Spirituality Centre here in Sheffield, the Bishop of Sheffield's advisor in spirituality laid on a course in February this year called Buddhists and Christians in Encounter. The brochure advertised it like this. A day's exploratory journey into some of the spiritual practices where Buddhists and Christians meet one another on the way, including self-emptying, going beyond words, limitless walking, recollection of the name of the Lord and development of non-dual consciousness. To do this, we'll be drawing on the wisdom and wit of the ancients with possible appearances of dragons, tigers and oxen. Now, when I saw this course advertised, I took it upon myself to speak to the bishop's advisor in spirituality, and I argued that the course denied the uniqueness of Christ and that it was in direct contradiction to the Church of England's Articles of Religion, but he disagreed with me and the course went ahead. So there is a prominent office holder in the Church of England blatantly turning to other gods. 
And Isaiah chapter 17 tells us when God's people do that, they are no longer God's people and they will come under God's judgment. Is it any wonder that church buildings are becoming carpet warehouses? But look, it would be too easy for us simply to look at others. This is here to warn us. Remember, Judah, the people of God of Isaiah's day, were being shown that if even Israel, even the nation that was so close to Judah would be judged, if it turned to the world, then they could be judged too. So this is here to warn us, to tell us as God's people that if churches can become blocks of flats, then it could happen to us too. This is here to challenge us, to get us to examine ourselves, to make us stop and think and ask ourselves how we as a church family are, verse 10, forgetting God our saviour, not remembering the rock your fortress. This is here to ask us how we as a church family are, verse 8, looking to other things, the work of our own hands to save us. I love the words in verse 10 because I think they really help us to see what's going on here. Look in verse 10, the names, the descriptions of God. He is our saviour. He is the rock. And he is your fortress. And you see all those words speak of security and safety. Security and safety from all the enemies of the world that come our way. He is the one who can save us, rescue us from everything we fear. You see, that is the issue here. That's why Judah were tempted to turn to other nations because they were fearful. They were looking for security. So that's the issue here. What do we turn to for security? Rather than trust God to rescue us, what do we look to for safety? Rather than stand on the rock, the solid rock who is God, Rather than run to the fortress who is God, what do we turn to to give us security and to get us out of a fix? And I thought about it all week and I could only come up with one thing. Well, there's probably more than one thing that I thought of, but there's one major thing. I reckon the thing that we most often turn to, the other God that we most often turn to most readily to give us security and safety is money. Indeed, have you seen how we treat money as our God? Just listen to the language we use. Rather than rely, on, uh, rely upon God the Father to provide us for, for everything for us, we think that money will provide for us. I am the breadwinner, meaning I bring money into the home. Money provides for me and my family. So we don't need to pray to our Heavenly Father, give us this day our daily bread. I wouldn't be at all surprised if you don't bother praying that every day. Why? Because you have money in your pockets. And that gives us all the daily bread we need and more. So we don't need to feel the need to turn to God the Father as the provider. And we don't feel the need to turn to God the Son to save us. We rely on money to rescue us. We save up for a rainy day. Our confidence that everything is going to be okay is not founded on Jesus, but on our insurance and assurance policies, our pensions and booper. We think if I've made wise financial investments, I'll be fine. If redundancy comes, I've got a little nest egg. If illness illness hits, I've got private health insurance. And when it gets tough, we turn to our credit card and ask, what will it cost me to get me out of this problem? 
So money replaces God the Father as the provider, God the Son as the Saviour, and even God the Spirit as our comforter. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter, but when I'm down and troubled, I don't throw myself upon the comforter. No, I go to that great cathedral of commerce. I go to Meadow Hall and I buy something and that makes me feel better for a while and we call it comfort shopping. Do you see how money is the alternative God we've turned to? How money replaces the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so, verse 10, we've forgotten God, our saviour. And we've not remembered the rock, our fortress. But Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. You can't. It's one or the other. But as I've looked at this this week, I think I can see why we do it. Maybe more clearly than ever before. We want safety and security. Of course we do. We're desperate to feel safe. Of course we are. See, despite all our bravado and self-confidence, we're not self-sufficient. We can't survive on our own. We do need someone to keep us safe. We were made to be in a relationship with God our Father. We are children. We need the loving kindness and safety and security of our Heavenly Father. Of course we're looking for safety and security. We were made to look for it. But you see, that comfort and security only comes from God nowhere else but when we turn from him we're going to look for it for somewhere else this section says don't turn to the world for safety and security you won't find it there don't make an alliance with the world or anything in it not even money it won't give you ultimate safety and security which you're really looking for understandably but then I reckon this crippling recession should have told us that Our money doesn't go far these days. Our investments aren't secure. Our nest eggs can disappear as quickly as a bank goes bust. And if the recession doesn't teach us the lesson, then death should. You see, in Isaiah, the people of Judah were fearful of death, real death, of of a nation sweeping down through them and completely sweeping them away. So we should be thinking about death. And when we look death squarely in the face, as I have to do so often in my job as I take funerals, When you look death squarely in the face, you realise that money doesn't solve everything. It makes no difference when you're on your deathbed, whether you're a millionaire or a pauper. No difference at all. And so this chapter, and especially verse 10, comes comes to us as as a word of great kindness from our God. He tells us to look to him, the one true God, who alone can save us and give us the security that we so crave and so need. See, Jesus is, verse 10, God our saviour. The one who can save us from the greatest enemy we have, death. So as a church family this morning, in repentance, we need to turn afresh to Jesus. I'm not just saying if you've never become a Christian, turn to him. I'm saying as a church family, many of us Christian people need to turn to him afresh today in repentance. Turn to the one who in his death took on himself the punishment we deserve for turning from our God. And in his resurrection defeated death. We should turn afresh to him. He is the rock. Stand on him and we're on solid, immovable ground. He is our fortress. In him we are totally safe and secure. 
We've got to try and believe again that in him we don't need anything else. And here's the thing for us as a church family this morning. If we'll remain faithful to him, he will protect us and this church. And the wonderful thought is that this church will remain, if we remain faithful to him, as a shining beacon of light in this dark world for years and years to come.